ATM, you know I don't put them graphics on the screen. Glad you tapped in now, stay tapped in for the team. Hey, everything is posted. Go follow the socials. South Harmon FF tag, I said we get notice. Welcome to South Harmon, we glad you here today. What's going on, shitheads? Welcome back in to the new podcast, Highly Detailed. Episode 3. Episode 1, we touched on transparency and failure, the importance of both. Episode 2, we talked about players and coaches, understanding and establishing the difference between the two, and being mindful of the content you consume. Leading up to here, episode 3, The Pearl. A pearl is a gemstone, and when you think of gemstones, first thing you're going to think of is jewelry. There are so many different gemstones, uh, hundreds or thousands of them, and there's all different size, shapes, colors, and a lot of the typical ones you think of, you'll think of, you know, a diamond or an emerald, a ruby, a lot of precious stones that give meaning to people and they value for one way or the other, whether it's look, rarity, whatever the case may be. With gemstones, they're naturally occurring, but in order to naturally occur, there's basically five requirements you have to think of. This is technically for crystals to form, but you need the ingredients of what that is for the gemstone to form. You need not just the ingredients, but you'll need some combination of temperature, pressure, time, and space, right? So some of them may come from deep within the earth. Typically, this is going to be from pressure. You've probably heard the reference before, pressure makes diamonds. Some of them may be formed from a combination of intense heat and pressure. Some gemstones are formed when the minerals are very rich and hot, and when they hit the water, they cool down. Because they're precious stones and people value them and they want to have them for jewelry and people can make money on them, they are all very heavily mined. People are trying to get their hands on these gemstones in an effort to sell them down the road to make money. Of all the different types of gemstones out there that form jewelry, there's only one that occurs and is made in a living creature. All those other things, you can mine them, you can find them within the earth, one way, shape, or form for whatever process takes place to create that gemstone. But only one of them is formed in a living creature. So a pearl is formed in a mollusk. A mollusk is, think of an oyster, a clam, a mussel, something you'd eat in seafood restaurants. But these, these are formed in the sea. These creatures are in the sea. These mollusks are bivalve creatures. So what that means is they have two shells which are hinged at one spot. And those two shells can open and close. With that opening and closing, they typically feed off of algae from the water. Now, a pearl is formed when it's opening and shutting, and an irritant gets into this mollusk. Now, let's say, for, for example, that it is an oyster, okay? So, in this oyster, the irritant not only gets in there, but it has to get into the mantle tissue. It has to be so disruptive to this oyster that it's going to cause problems and be so irritating that the oyster has to have a defense mechanism to stop this from wreaking havoc, and while doing that, its defense mechanism takes this irritant and it wraps it in what's known as the mother of the pearl, or nacre. And nacre, nacre is extremely thin, and it's extremely tough. It's, it's more durable than concrete. Now this defense mechanism, layering it over and over and over for days, turns in depending on the oyster or the mollusk, anywhere from six months all the way up to five years before this process is finally done and it's turned this irritant into a pearl, a gemstone. They're so rare that naturally occurring, about one in every 10,000 mollusks is going to create naturally a pearl. Now, initially, when mankind discovers the pearl and discovers this unbelievable gemstone that's coming out of a 
oyster. So with people trying to get these gemstones, which are very highly sought out and are valuable, they couldn't keep up with the demand from natural pearls. So people began to try to figure out a way to farm, create them, essentially figuring out how these creatures are going to produce the pearl. And once they figured out how that stimulation works and executed it, there became a whole different industry in pearl farming. Now, fast forward to where we are today, over a hundred years later, they have this down to an exact science and they know specifically what types of mollusks and what they need to do and insert into these mollusks to get the most desirable pearl. The most desirable pearl, it comes from the South Sea and it's formed in the Pinctata Maxima. Now, when you think about this Pinctata Maxima, it's able to basically get 20 millimeter round pearls when you do it correctly. Certain mollusks can actually form multiple pearls at a time, but the Pinctata Maxima, that can form this really big, large pearl. It can only form one pearl at a time. Along with that, only one out of four, so 25% of these are actually going to survive during the pearl cultivation that they do with farming. Of that 25%, only 20 of those oysters are going to make what is known as the most valuable pearl. So even of the ones that survive the cultivation, 80% of them are going to make pearls that are very nice, but they're not the highly desired pearl. Only 20% of those 25% make this perfectly round, highly desirable pearl out there. So think about that. We know everything that there basically is to know about the pearl. We know how it's made. We know what causes it. And we have tried to replicate it for this minimal of results. Two main things, the main takeaways. One, literally inserting into this mollusk is something that's irritating. And in this irritating process, the parasite that is, a, that is this irritant, it turns that into something beautiful, highly desirable, something that we all would love to have. Now, the second thing, understanding all of that, it's still extremely rare. Think about it this way. If everything that we learned about the pearl and we executed this and it was capable of being produced at such a rate, instead of let's say 25% of these that are going to survive cultivation, let's say it's 100% or 90%, let's say it's very, very high. And then of those 90%, let's say another 80 or 90% are actually able to produce very highly desirable. It would influx the market with a ton of what we call today extremely desirable and rare pearls. So while people may still want to wear pearls and they may still look great, because the scarcity doesn't exist, because it's not rare, the price point and the demand for them is going to come down significantly. Switching gears here, according to the National Endowment for Financial Education, they say 70% of people that win the lottery, they're eventually going to blow it all and go bankrupt within the first few years of winning that money. So if you think about that, right? In the world of capitalism, everybody wants to go have money and they would love to have a surplus. Part of capitalism is there is no limit on what you can have. There's the saying, the rich get richer. People continually go after the almighty dollar. If this is something that people care so much about and everyone would love to have more money, how is it possible that, let's even call it 30%, let's say it was, were to go bankrupt after getting such a large supply, a life-changing amount of money. We're talking millions, millions, and millions of dollars. Now, let's say the National Endowment for Financial Education is correct. And it's 70%. If 70% of people get that type of life-changing money, how do they just blow it and they have nothing to show for it within a few years? Ultimately, there, there's a lot of different factors. And some of the things that are pointed to are many people that win the lottery, they, they came from nothing or they currently were broke. When you're broke, you typically have no budgeting habits. You have no real understanding of how money works or you're just bad with managing money. So while you're given this lump supply of money, you may not have any understanding of it and you don't know how to really budget or appropriate it. Now that's probably part of it. 
But honestly, when I when I think about all the different reasons and when we kind of cut to the chase, what's almost assuredly, in my opinion, the most important of these factors is that the money came to these people very easily. When something comes to you extremely easily, you don't have to work for it at all. It's not something you highly value. Easy come, easy go, they say, right? So most entrepreneurs, they actually typically start from nothing or at least very humble beginnings. And many times these entrepreneurs, they fail over and over, kind of getting to the point of episode one. Eventually they will come upon one of these massive successes. And when that happens, many of those successes are not instant payouts in this innovation. And they have to work tirelessly in order to see the payoff happen because of that. And because of all the irritants along the way in the process, when they get their pearl, there's an intrinsic understanding of what went into this achievement, which is a totally different value and sense of pride than somebody just winning the lottery because they happened to pick the right numbers or because they were given the lucky ticket. Now, with that in mind, let's transition to your favorite part of the show, to Dynasty. This podcast, highly detailed, it's going to be very episodical. What I mean by that is each episode you can listen to and individually you can get a lot from it. However, why it's episodical is they're all going to be connected with each other, a series. This whole series has been thought out. I'm doing it with intent. I'm not just firing from the hip every episode. The sequence in which each one of these is released, a lot of the principles and things we talk about will be connected with each other. Now, this episode, with that pearl in mind. And while everybody as a player may have different strengths or tendencies and things they don't do as well, what's very critical to establish for yourself as a player, what are your goals? It's time to be real before we turn the page here. What are your goals as a fantasy manager, I posed that question that was on X. What is the most important thing for you when you play this game? It all really boils down to one very critical question before we can proceed. And that critical question is, do you want to win? Is that the most important thing to you or is it not? You may be fine. You may say to yourself, the most important thing for me is to have fun. The most important thing for me is to connect with my league mates. The most important thing for me is looking at what I've built. But again, ask yourself, even if it's not the most important thing, how much do you want to win? A lot of times we can kind of skate by that question or really dodge it in a way, right? Where we say, well, the most important thing for me is fun. So if I don't win my league, I don't win my league. Truth of the matter, though, is you very much want to win your league. You may say that right now here in January, but better believe when those playoffs come around, you will know yourself how much of a competitor you are and how important it is to win your league. And ultimately, if it was, let's say, fun, how much more fun is it in your league when you win it versus when you don't? A lot of these things can be connected and we may want to dodge the fact that, well, winning's not everything. Winning's not the most important thing because it's hard to win. In every one of your leagues, I don't care how many players there are, there's one winner. There's one first place. Ricky Bobby, if you ain't first, you're last. Because there's only one winner, we may be willing to tell ourselves, uh, if you don't win, it's not that big of a deal. You tried, right? It's time to establish how important it is for you. Is winning fun for you? Does, that when you win your league, you can't tell me that isn't more fun. You can't tell me when that league has that trophy next to it that that build doesn't look better. You can't tell me that winning doesn't make a lot of these extra things that we could put as first importance to us or say that winning is not that important. They're tied together. And often winning after you win or in the process of winning, that's going to make all the other things 
that are important to you feel better. There's, there's a phrase out there, <laughs> winning cures everything. Now, obviously, there's some give and take to this, right? If you don't win your league, you can't have fun. If you don't win your league, you can still have a great build. If you don't win your league, you may have had the best team. You may have had the most points for in your league. You may have scored the most points in the playoffs, but specifically one week, you lost. Winning ultimately needs to be a balance, right? Now, in episode two, I touched on players and coaches and how coaches do need to have an understanding of their players if they want to be a player's coach and put their players in the best position to win relative to their strengths and weaknesses. And while that's key, while that's important to highlight, one thing I want to make sure everyone here listening is not doing as a player is utilizing whatever their weaknesses are, things they don't want to address, and now say, oh, coach is going to help me figure out another way around that. No, do not be dismissive. Don't downplay some things that you can actually work on just because you don't want to. And as a coach, that's going to be things that I have to address if I want to help push you, be an irritant to you, to get you to the spot that you can be your best self. One of the big things as a coach, right? One of the biggest qualities I still believe is being relatable. And the reason I say that, the quality of being relatable, if I give you certain piece of information if I'm a coach. If you give someone a piece of information and it's delivered in a certain manner, it may not be received well. So for example, if I'm trying to coach you on something that you can do well and we're looking at film, right? And I show you via film where you messed up and I go pull up some of my film where I did the same thing right and kind of do it in a tone, which is feeling like it's shoving it up your ass, right? Like you can't do this. I can get to work. That may be the way someone decides to approach it. That's not the best way. Even showing film, of yourself doing that in the right delivered manner can be totally different and more effective. One of the biggest ways that you can make players feel relatable to you and you can feel like you're in this together with them as a coach, as a dynasty creator, as a dynasty player. I'm not going to ask of you or push you to do something which I don't actually believe is going to help benefit you or that I personally would not be willing to do myself. And because I am coaching and playing, one of the most relatable things to do is if I'm telling you that this is my way of trying to help you do something, being irritant to you, doing it to myself shows you I'm not just talking about it. I'm going to be about it. And the reason I think this is so big and what I want to do here, give you an actual example, how I was able to go do something. What was an irritant to me, something that was uncomfortable, something I'd never tried before. Take it from someone I do believe has success and do trust their strategy and implement it myself on my own team. So let me go ahead and give you what that looks like. So in the 22 season, most of my teams, I drafted with a running back heavy approach. I'll give you all the details. I'll be highly detailed with this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read off a roster as it finished at the end of the 22 season, where it was sitting, what the situation was. I'm not going to act like this team was in dire stress, but it was not really positioned as well as it should be. And I'm going to talk about, I'm going to give you the entire roster. And then I'm going to talk about what happened as far as trades to position the team in a way which was uncomfortable for me in an effort to create that pearl for myself. Superflex, lineup, start nine. Half PPR, it is a full point per catch for the tight end. So it's a half point tight end premium. It's not a significant tight end premium um, when you think about it. So in the 21 season, in the title game, I had a great, great team, but I did get beat with by the Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase stack and that great uh, game they had at the one o'clock window. Going into this season, believed I was going to have, you know, a cakewalk into the playoffs for that to be dead wrong. So the team as a whole goes five and nine in the 22 season. Team as the 22 season finishes, Dak Prescott, Saquon Barkley, Cam Akers, DJ Moore, AJ Brown, DeAndre Swift, Travis Kelsey at tight end. I had Matthew Stafford, uh, Antonio Gibson, Brandon Cooks, Allen Robinson, Noah Fant, 
<clears throat> Kyle Pitts and Brees Hall on the IR of notes. I had a lot of dynasty value and I had the luxury to play both sides of contending to grab picks and numbers and high quantities to create leverage everywhere I could. I was trying to play both sides of the coin and have been doing a pretty good job of it. So going into the season, I had six, uh, 24, 23 first. I ended up moving two in a pit in a Kyle Pitts trade, which ended up flaming out. So going into the 2023 season, I have four 23 first round picks as well as four 23 second round picks. And I have one 23 fourth. Four 24 first and a 24 second, and I still have all my 25 picks intact. Obviously, areas of concern, Dak Prescott only to have Matthew Stafford as my quarterback two. No quarterback three really of note. You look at my uh, receiving room, right? So I had A.J. Brown, stud, love that. But after that, we had D.J. Moore, who I like, but at wide receiver two and a lineup start nine. And you go on from that point, I mean, my other receivers were really bad. Brandon Cooks, Allen Robinson, Devin Duvernay, that I was roster constructed the wrong way. Now, before I give you all the details and the trades and all that, let me give you the idea that was so difficult for me to get behind and understanding the idea, trying to execute the first time on my own. I was a, a running back heavy person, and I would address in a league like that, especially at half PPR, I try to juice those four uh, spots, two running back spots and the two flex spots that we had, allocate those to running backs, try to get massive points per game running backs in those options. And then I was comfortable going thin, right, with that A.J. Brown and D.J. Moore wide receiver room where, you know, I got A.J. Brown as the one hammer, D.J. Moore a little inconsistent but has the pop week opportunity. And in years past, worked out really well, honestly. I had some stud running backs. I had Jonathan Taylor that, that year prior. So going into this season, I needed to have a complete overhaul and what this was going to look like in formation, the idea behind it. I need to try to get out a lot of these running backs, get out of running backs that I can if possible. That was one thing. And I had a surplus of them. Try to buy some receivers, try to make that room, instead of having those two, more like five, six really wide receivers. I wanted to have warp difference makers at the receiver position. I had this quarterback room to address. I had Kyler Murray and I had Dak Prescott. And while that was great, I ended up tearing down from Kyler Murray, took the tear down approach which at the time I thought was great because I got Matt Stafford and I got Travis Kelsey. So I get those two guys and I got a bunch of seconds. So I'm like, this is just a smash. I have to take it. Matthew Stafford going into the 22, disaster. And didn't have a, a quarterback three. So I had to do a lot of things going into this season with the team and the value that I had in draft picks. With this idea in mind, I had a lot of work to do. So first trade of the year, I send... Brees Hall and a 23 first, which was the 102, for Lamar Jackson and Brandon Ayuk. So I'd send that running back in the 102. This point, remember February 1st, Lamar Jackson hadn't secured the bag yet. And there was a lot of hype around him not playing for Baltimore ever again. What's going to happen? There was all kinds of panic in the streets on Lamar. And that's how I was kind of able to secure that deal. Interesting thing, the person at 101 ends up taking a rich. Now, Obviously, I could have taken Stroud, but I wasn't going to do that at that point. And what I definitely didn't want to do, and I'm really glad that trade went through, is it took away any opportunity. What I didn't need to do, what I just told you about all the running backs and different things I needed to do to overhaul this team, the last thing I would have wanted to do is sit there and not be able to say no to Bijan and add another running back to this freaking team. So um, process-wise, just made sense to go ahead and get Lamar and get into Brandon Ayuk, who I was still very bullish on. All right, so first trade in the books bunch of rejecteds here. I was trying to make moves. Uh, actually, these rejecteds that I'm looking at back and forth in unison, they end up coming to a completed deal. And so this is where I get a little bit crazy, right? So I landed Lamar. At the time I had Dak, 
and in my mind, I'm saying, ah, man, like, I don't mind Dak, but what if I could have Lamar and Mahomes? So, um, in lineup league and looking at Wart from the year prior. Okay, so I hit him with, my offer is Dak Prescott, DeAndre Swift, the 103 and the 111. I send that, fire that off to him right away. He responds back, his counter back is Dak Prescott, A.J. Brown, DeAndre Swift, 111, 103. Again, the whole idea of this was to tear up the Mahomes, but I already had to build out my receiver room. The last thing I'm trying to do is send away my top receiver when I have a lot of work to do there. So that part was going to kill it. At this point, we have a DM conversation. It, it opens up the DMs, right? And for a guy that isn't really highly active, getting a DM, like getting some serious interest at least for Mahomes and making it acquirable. Okay, let's see what we got. I, I told him I can't do AJ Brown. It, like that's just not going to happen. The structure of the deal I sent you there thought was a pretty fair deal. Um, I'd be willing to maybe add something light. Kind of already tapped out as far as value. Upon that, he says, okay, well, if you can add the 112, I'll go ahead and do it. Now, me and my values, I'm like, man, 103, 111, 112. That's already three. And Dak and DeAndre Swift. Anyway, uh, consult, consult Scott. Credit where credit's due. A lot of the implementation in the process, the roster construction, a fair amount of how he roster constructed. We ended up doing my warp series this year. And he's like, listen, it's overpay, but you go get my homes and you can get my homes. So the software was in my inbox. Didn't love it, but I'm like, you know what, man? Let's go for it. I've got the picks. I've, I've built up value. Let's hit the button. So now I've gone from Dak Prescott and Matthew Stafford as my quarterback room to Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, and Matthew Stafford now as my quarterback three. So the next trade doesn't take place until the draft actually on the clock. So the 101 becomes Anthony Richardson. This is on the clock here. 102, B. John Robinson. 103, Bryce Young. 104, C.J. Stroud. 105 is Jackson, Smith, and Jigba. And the reason it's so interesting is because now 106 the guy who's on the clock, his name's Kyle. He's actually a shithead. He also, his team name is I Want to Shit on You. Pretty fitting. But he's on the clock at 106. But I know he listens to us and he is, you know, someone that's rebuilding. I know that he doesn't actually want to take Jameer Gibbs and he's going to have to. I'm willing to kind of play ball with the idea of just acquiring Jameer Gibbs and seeing if I can move him later because I still have to move other running backs. But I know Jameer Gibbs' value at this point really was past the 106. So the final deal we end up settling on he sends me the 106, which is Jameer Gibbs. I send him my 25 second, the 2023 209, and a 24 first from Bills Mafia, who at this point, he was a team I wanted to bet against. He still had a very good quarterback group of Jalen Hurts and Josh Allen. And, you know, throwing in that first, the time decay, um, adding my late second, I believe it was going to be in, in 2025, plus the 209. All right, let's do it. I'll figure out what I'm going to do with Jameer Gibbs later. How this next trade goes down, the series of events involved in this. There was a guy, again, that I would have been betting against for a while. The difference here is this build for him eventually did come coming to a, a big screeching halt. Now, at the time in the offseason, he wasn't necessarily willing to buy into it. One of those teams you look at and you're saying, man, like, I don't see it. I don't know how you can pull this off. The way a lot of people would approach it in Dynasty, uh, most people would be like, man, this is just something you got to gut. But I was sitting on his 24 first. So at this time, uh, when we're making this negotiation, he has Tyreek Hill and Cooper Cup. If you are going to come get this pick, it's going to cost. If you want to give me both of those guys, I'd put the pick in the mix. Like, I'm not even saying that I wouldn't add something or figure out a way to make it work for both of us. But I'm not coming off of your pick unless both of these guys are coming to me. Nobody else on your team is worth it, and I wouldn't send it for just Tyreek Hill, and I wouldn't send it for just Cooper Cup. Uh, we eventually, after multiple, multiple counters back and forth, we settle on 
a happy medium. I'm like, man, I can't believe you wouldn't want to go get your own 24 first and come off of both of them and figure out a way to just start rebuilding from there. Didn't want to do it. He sends me Cooper Cup. I send him, in return, I send him Brandon Cooks, my 2026 second, and the 2024 first of Ewok Village, who was the champion uh, actually the last two years. He'd won the league two years in a row. Okay, so at this point, really, I've acquired now Jameer Gibbs. I've acquired Cooper Cup. I've acquired Brandon Ayuk. I've acquired Patrick Mahomes. And I have acquired Lamar Jackson as the, the integral pieces to try to totally rebuild this. Interestingly enough, so that trade for Cooper Cup goes down on May 16th. August 27th, all of a sudden, he trades away Tyree Kill as well. And he gets DeAndre Hopkins in the first. So he's tiered down twice and Really, like at this point now, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is fantastic. I know Tyreek Hill's awesome. I was just thinking maybe he had a chance with Tyreek Hill and some of those guys certain weeks to put his pick outside the top three. Okay, so moving on. The person that gets Tyreek Hill, though, now is coming sniffing for my Jameer Gibbs. And this is about like a little bit about know your league mate. I know he's a Lions guy. He's a Detroit Lions fan, and he wants my Jameer Gibbs, and he wants to send me Tyreek Hill. Now, all the while knowing, one, I want to get off of running backs. I'm trying to, this new approach, trying to embrace it. So we eventually end up settling on, I get Tyreek Hill, a 25 second, I send away Gerald Everett, Jameer Gibbs, and a third. was trying to see if I could leverage more. I knew he really wanted Gibbs, but at this point, this is too perfect for the process. Let's go ahead and put this trade through. I have done a serious overhaul of the roster from February to August. Kind of reshaped this team into Patrick Mahomes, Saquon Barkley, Cam Akers. So I went from an A.J. Brown, D.J. Moore receiver room to A.J. Brown, Tyreek Hill, D.J. Moore, Brandon Ayuk, and Cooper Cup. But I had five legit receivers, all that I felt very comfortable starting. So anyway, Patrick Mahomes, Saquon Barkley, Cam Akers, A.J. Brown, Tyreek Hill. I have Kyle Pitts and Travis Kelsey, D.J. Moore, Mar Jackson, Matthew Stafford as the backup quarterback. I have uh, Brandon Ayuk and Cooper Cup. With that team assembled, not something I was used to, right? But I embraced it. I know what my plan is. I was antithetical to a lot of the ways I used to approach the game. Starts off working really well. Tyreek Hill's having a great year. A lot of the players that you, you heard there were doing well. I was able to acquire uh, Devon A-Chain um, for just a single first, so I was feeling really good. 7-0 and the first seven weeks. Start to hit some buys, some, um, uh, some unlucky stuff. Week 8, I lose a close game. I lose another close one in week 9. And then I get gaped. Week 10 and week 11. So all of a sudden, 7-0, and four weeks in a row, a combination of unlucky two weeks and the score and team I was playing, as well as two weeks, which were an aberration, team just completely no-showed. And there is no against the median scoring here. So I end up losing four games for the season. But because I lost those four games, don't get a bye. Now, one of the things you got to keep in mind here is while that team I assembled, right, and a lot of it was using warp and putting a lot into Patrick Mahomes, I had the Mahomes and Kelsey stack, right? And I had Tyreek Hill. What do we know about the situation with all those guys? While they were great, Travis Kelsey, the whole Taylor Swift thing happens. Travis Kelsey in the playoffs, absolutely atrocious. Patrick Mahomes down the stretch was a middling quarterback too, or what I paid would have rather just had Dak Prescott straight up anyway. Tyreek Hill gets banged up. And because I didn't get a bye, Tyreek Hill doesn't play in week 15. So, Going into week 15, most points four in the league, got this great team, did not earn a bye, all to really shit the bed and lose to a great performance anyway. Um, he had Brock Purdy, Kyron Williams, Chris Godwin had a great week. Uh, Gardner Minshew actually played well. Trey McBride had a good week. Given the roster I had put together, I felt great about it. There was probably some things along the way I could have tried to do better, but I really embraced a new approach in this really value wide receivers try to move off the running backs frankly in this league it was very hard to get off of running backs nobody was buying 
So I got stuck with a lot of them and ended up even buying A-Chain to try to really form out this roster that I thought could have a chance to win. Some of the stuff was bad breaks. Build a good team. I understand the process that goes here. You know, I had some bad luck. All in all, I'm not going to tell you and challenge you to do something and try to coach you to do something that I also personally would not be willing to embrace that challenge. Not just come out of this as a better dynasty manager, but I'm more well-rounded. I can play in a different strategy now. I can probably find a way to blend and mix this in with other things. I got better through this process. It was not the way I wanted to play. It was not the way I was used to playing. I could have probably found a way to go in there and had Christian McCaffrey and done this running back thing again. But that wouldn't have really made me a better dynasty manager. It would have just been subject to what would have happened with certain players in the same build. That's not irritating myself. That's not pushing myself to get to a different level or uncomfortable spot as a dynasty manager. The reason I say all that and talked about all that in the beginning with the pearl, with the lottery, and with entrepreneurship, and the differences with what's given to you and what comes easy versus what you have to work really hard for and ultimately reflecting on the pearl with that. Think about it from last episode and the content and the ease of access we have with everything. Right now, we live in a world where it is very easy. Look at all the advancements we've made in our life. Again, you have your phone on you at all times. You can get access to almost anything, especially if you're willing to pay for it on top of it, right? If it's behind a paywall, you have the internet access on your phone anywhere to have that answer right now. Delayed gratification is something we don't really have to deal with. So so much of this advancement in life has afforded us so many luxuries that are wildly different than just a few generations prior to us. A lot of times, because of this, there tends to be a societal entitlement. So many people just were entitled. I, I deserve to have a phone. I deserve to have this. I deserve to have that. Without really having a reason for deserving it, just because that's just what we should have. So we are sometimes not even cognizant of how much our entitlement is. But think about when we have too easy of a life, using the pearl again as an example. So many parallels in life as we push forward with advancement will ultimately come back to challenge a lot of this this easy life that we try to create for ourselves. Again, think of irritants with the pearl. Let's use weightlifting as an example. When you go to the gym to work out, there may be multiple different reasons why you do such. Some people, they may want to go to get shredded, right? Some people, they might may want to go to bulk up. Some people, they really get a good sense of self-esteem, health benefits. There's a lot of different reasons, which may be the underlining why you're going to the gym and lifting weights. The benefit that you're getting the lean muscle tissue that you're getting when you lift, you are actually creating micro tears in your muscle fibers. So every time you go to do those extra sets, whether you're doing multiple heavyweight sets or you're doing a lot of lightweight, high number of reps, doesn't matter. When you do that, you're actually creating micro tears in the fibers in your muscles. By doing that, by tearing them down, when they go to recover, they come back bigger and they come back stronger. You effectively are irritating your muscles, right? You're actually tearing them. And by doing that, something better and beautiful comes out of that. You look a lot better if you consistently lift weights and consistently irritate your muscles. You can use conditioning, whether it's for a race or a sport you're playing. Over and over, you're training your body irritating it and you'll be better prepped to run the race you'll be better prepped to play the sport for the full game so many parallels line up with the pearl but because you didn't want to challenge yourself or you didn't want to go through the tough things you didn't want to irritate yourself 
understand that because there's only one winner in your league every year, everybody wants to win typically, or they say they want to win. In order to be the one winner every year though, you're going to have to outdo the other 11 people in your league in a 12-team league. See, the thing about winning is along the way, winning is one of those things that during the process, winning isn't necessarily fun. But I can guarantee you that the teams that win, when you see them with that trophy, everybody can see there's no way to hide that jubilation. There's no way to hide that joy, that kiddish feeling when you go to win a title that everyone else is also chasing but you have. You were the one that won that. That level of beauty, that level of success to get that win is as fun as it gets. It may not have been fun along the way, but that feeling of crossing the finish line first, that's as fun as fun can be. And in almost every way, shape, or form, if you're irritating yourself and challenging yourself to the highest level, Winning is a piece of validation to whatever part of the game that you're most drawn to. So when I talk about goals, set the goals you think are most important to yourself. Set the goals that you think are realistic and you think are attainable. But just because you set up those goals, don't try to give yourself a white lie. Don't try to tell yourself that, uh, yeah, because I want to have fun, winning is not necessarily as important. Getting back to the coaching point for myself, if I know that you want to work on parts of your game that you're weak on as a coach. And you tell me, okay, I'm good at this. I want to highlight, for example, listen, one of the things in my game that I really would like to work on and be better at is, you know, being a little more diligent in trade offers, sending a few more out. I'm not really the greatest trader. Sometimes I get frustrated with people. Let's just use that for an example. Okay. You could go into next year and not really work on that. That's easy. That's the easy way. And honestly, you still could be a good enough dynasty manager that you still do well. But what if you challenge yourself? What if you started thinking, why am I not pushing more into trades? Why am I pulling out of these trade offers so soon? Or why am I letting other people annoy me to the point where I'm not willing to push through that and try to find a way to improve my team? What if you were to improve on that? What if through uncomfortable things this offseason, you address some trade issues, some things in trading that you can benefit and improve from? And by being a better trader, this offseason, and definitely in the season, you'll be in a much better position to secure a dub. Honestly, if I'm a coach and I know that you do want to win, I'm doing a disservice to you as a player and myself as a coach if I don't highlight that and I don't become the irritant, a pain in the ass for you because, man, I don't really want to deal with this right now. It's just a hobby. It's supposed to be fun. To get something that everybody wants to, to separate yourself, you're going to have to do things that most people are not willing to put themselves through to get to that point. If winning is not really an important thing for you, if you're playing this game and winning is down the list, and not that you wouldn't like to win, everybody of course would like to win, but you really don't have a massive sense of accomplishment or you don't feel like that really changes much for you, you've won some things in the past and all that, fine. Absolutely fine. And even then, Challenge yourself to figure out some other ways maybe you could work on your game and still have fun. Okay, I look back at last year and I have won, let's say, I'm going to give a hypothetical. Let's say you won four leagues out of 12 that you're in, right? So you wanted a third, a clip of one out of every three leagues. It's pretty good, honestly. If that was the case, you'd have a great year. And you may say to yourself, like, all I have to do is keep repeating this. Like, I don't, I, I can put it on easy mode. 
I've already accomplished more than I set out last year. I'm having a blast doing this, and I feel very good about the way that I play the game and approach it. Don't have any disagreements with any of that, but how did you get there? Did that really come easy to you? Did you win those leagues, those four leagues, and have you always won leagues just easily? It's come natural to you. There may be a small percentage of people out there that are saying yes to that question, and that's fine if that's the case. Most of us, even if we play at a certain level now, we weren't always the greatest, and we learned so much along the way by irritating ourselves or doing things stupidly that cost us. But if you, let's say in that scenario, okay, you won four leagues out of 12, but let's say you can go through and honestly assess, man, you know, I really wasn't that active on the waiver wire, or there were certain people, certain types of players that I really didn't target. I look back, man, I could have, I, I might have been able to have Puka Nakua had I been paying attention. There was times throughout the year that if I would have streamed tight end, if I would have been willing to go the A-warp tight end life, man, I probably could have picked up Tanner Hudson and a lot of other different tight ends throughout the season, Tucker Crafts, and I could have gotten those guys for almost free, right? Fab budget money. And instead, I could have traded away my George Kittle and my team would overall be better. These are specific examples that you can think of, but right now, let's say it's the waiver wire. Maybe because you're going to, you know, having a lot of fun with doing this, you go from 12 to 15 leagues. Let's not even say you get crazy. Very similar portfolio. What if you said to yourself, I'm not actually that good at, at waiver wire and I kind of just, it's not my thing. I either don't care about it all that much. I think I'm, my abilities are better. I can in start nine, start 10 type leagues. I don't need to address it. More often than not, those players don't end up making a difference for me. Maybe they don't make your lineup. Maybe they don't make your roster better weekly from a starting position standpoint. But how many times could you have picked a player up like that and netted an extra third round draft pick? How many times could you have added someone like that and maybe maybe block somebody? Maybe kept one of the teams in your league that gave you a fit and could have beaten you away from a super flex quarterback. There were so many of those guys this year. Joe Flacco, Aiden O'Connell, so many guys weekly, Easton Stick. They were actually solid. Jake Browning. I mean, the list goes on and on. How many times like that? If you would have had a better waiver wire approach, could you have gotten yourself to an either higher level, a better degree of playing this game of Dynasty? And if you can address that and know that and say, all right, what I'm going to do is irritate myself a little bit. I don't really find that fun, but I know there's got to be some people out there with a very good process and they have across, you know, 12 to 15 leagues. They have a system in place that will help make waivers more fun and more efficient. And what if by doing that across my 12 to 15 leagues, what if I end up winning an extra two? Or what if I'm in the position to win an extra two even? Improving that aspect of your game gives you a better chance at winning more of those leagues. Once you get the habit in, once you have that uncomfortable feeling and you push yourself, it's much like weightlifting. It's not going to be fun the first times. But once you see the results... It's a lot more fun to look in the mirror. Go back for yourself and think about something in life that wasn't fun during the time that it went, that it happened for you. But as you look back at that, you could say, man, I really did benefit from that. Like that was irritating as hell. I really didn't like doing that. But man, I probably am in a better position because I went through it because something irritated me. I told you last episode, kid named Aaron Davis was a really good shooter. And when we played for the city team, Stowe, the Stowe Bulldogs, Aaron and I, we, we did really well. But then when you go make the jump from playing to going to play AAU and trying to compete at the state level and then, you know, going down to Florida, playing at nationals, more and more teams competing for one goal of trying to win. Some of the dads and coaches, uh, Coach Stein, out scouting, trying to add talent to our team. The end of fighting the kid is also Adam, Adam Rice. He was honestly like six foot as a fourth, fifth grade kid, very tall. And they get him to come on our team. So I was already there first and 
since they call me Adam, they start calling him Big A. Makes sense. He's taller than Coach Stein as a, as a fourth grade kid. So he comes and plays AAU with us. He can't play on the city team, Stowe, because he's not from Stowe. But he can play on the AAU team. It's a welcome addition to our team. Now, AAU, in certain rules in your state for high school, going into seventh grade, our high school, CBCA, was 7 to 12. OSHA, the Ohio High School Athletic Association, had a rule that you could only have two kids from a high school that play on an AAU team together. The idea behind this rule was that you didn't want high school teams kind of abusing the AAU situation. Essentially, you'd have the high school coach and a bunch of their players having an AAU team, which was truly free practice and gave a disadvantage. So Aaron, Big A, and myself have been playing together for three years, all going to different schools, but now they're all going to CVCA. Now we all had very different games. Aaron was a great shooter, honestly a pretty good ball handler. He could do a lot of things well. Big A was just, you know, huge, down on the block presence, impacted the game with his size, and it seemed like the sky was the limit. I was very good at getting to the basket, crafty around the rim, was a scorer, and at this point, it's never really occurred to me necessarily, I'm going to be the odd man out, or that wasn't even a consideration for me. You're a young kid. So when this rule gets implemented, and at some point it hit me, oh, oh, y'all motherfuckers really think not just he's big A, I'm little A. There was a harsh reality of, they clearly told me, they believed that I was the third best player of those three. And as a young kid, I can't explain to you the combination of the feeling of being left out, plus the harsh reality of, y'all really don't think I'm that good. I had to try to find a new AAU team. And that was not a fun process. It was very irritating playing for some of these teams. Some of these teams were not very good. It felt like we're now nowhere near as well coached as Coach Stein. What I can tell you, that irritation, maybe not even healthily, it drove me to a place that I know factually I never would have gotten had that rule not existed. Had I still been able to keep playing for Summit Swish, I never have that experience. And because that feeling was there, I'm going to make you feel me. You guys don't really know how good I'm going to be. I can't wait to prove to you guys that you passed on the wrong one. There was a motivation from that irritation that literally would never have started. That flame never was lit going through the process that I went through. At the time, I hated it. But now every day in junior high practices, every time I laced up, y'all passed on me. When they asked me to come back and play for them on their AAU team, after, felt like I had to channel my inner Stephen A. Did you tell him? Did you tell him you betrayed me? Later, you wrote a lengthy apology to me, begging me to forgive you. You want me to talk about that? Because I got receipts. Did you tell him? Nah, you guys made your choice. You guys are going to keep that. <laughs> Listen, big picture, real life, it's not that deep. But in the moment, it was. That experience, while irritating, it pushed me to make sure when you see the three of these kids play, that there's no doubt that little A is the best player and it's not even close. And believe me, in short order, that that thought, that concept, it became everyone else's reality. And when you go through certain things that are irritating in the moment, things that suck, things that piss you off, all that irritation, if channeled and used correctly, can turn into something really beautiful on the other end. My question for you, are you willing to rise to the challenge? Are you willing to assess many different angles of yourself as a dynasty manager? Really put yourself under the microscope. If you want to explore as many avenues as possible, this offseason, in an attempt to become a more well-rounded dynasty manager, I believe this podcast, Highly Detailed, is different than many, but it's also going to be one of the best places for you to do that, and it's specifically what we're going to be covering. Starting with episode four, we're going to be deep diving specific strategies, we're going to discuss them, and go over several different details. We're going to start with the topic of assessing your league mates, and some of the ways I like to dissect and microanalyze you know, the people in the leagues that I'm competing against. Whether that's a strength or a weakness for you, 
Get your mind right for that. If you're really enjoying this podcast and are ready to rise to that challenge, you want to go through this series where I'm trying to coach and teach you, then come prepared. Have these things prepped for episode four next week. What were some of the failures you found in 23? What do you view as a list for yourself, right? (laughs) Remember the packet I got? What do you view for yourself as a list of strengths and weaknesses? Think about episode two then as well. Dynasty content that's in your regular rotation. Okay, so whatever that is, podcast, video form, whatever it is, why are you consuming it? Have that stuff. And then from today, is winning the most important thing to you? If it's not number one, is it likely going to strongly improve what is most important to you, right? Is that winning going to make it that much more fun? Is it going to go hand in hand winning? If that's the case, how important is winning for you? If you can come and be prepared and say that winning is not that important for you, fine. But have an honest assessment of that. Most of you are probably going to say that winning is a part of a pretty significant part. It may not be the most important thing, but it's going to be a pretty significant part of why you're playing. So if you're ready to do that, you're prepped with all those things, let's go. Let's get you outside your comfort zone so that when you get your pearl, you'll have a very intrinsic understanding of what went into that achievement. And the key, if you really embrace this, if you start doing that and you set that up and you start rewiring your brain, you're going to start really enjoying the chase and enjoying the grind of getting better. You're gonna start really enjoying the process of being irritated, and your mind's gonna switch. You're no longer gonna be uncomfortable being irritated. You're gonna be uncomfortable being too comfortable, and you'll put yourself in a position to drastically improve as a dynasty manager and take the next step in becoming highly detailed.